Most of us don't question whether a hospital's emergency department is fully functioning outside the hours of 9 to 5 p.m. The very nature of the ED is its 24-7 setup, anticipating the worst with the staffing and the systems to go along with it. But what about the rest of the hospital? Don't patients have a right to feel equally safe and cared for whatever floor or unit they're on, no matter the time of day? Maybe so, but over the years, hospitals haven't always looked hard at how to achieve this goal once the sun goes down and have allowed all kinds of considerations about evenings, overnight, and weekends to trump some of the most important ones, patient safety and continuity of care. Several issues are now forcing healthcare organizations to focus on this issue, many having to do with staffing schedules and work hour restrictions, ironically enough. Adapting to these changes has linked up with a more robust understanding of patient safety and the trajectory is changing the processes and the assumptions about the hospital at night. That's what we're going to explore on this edition of WIHI. And my microphone seems a little bit hot, so I'm going to ask somebody to turn it down just a little bit. So welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, offered bi-weekly and also for your later listening and convenience via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. I want to thank you for your patience. We got underway just a couple of minutes uh, later than usual today. We are we have a whole new phone system here at IHI, and we're finding out some of the quirks of it, sometimes the hard way, but uh, we'll get it down. So we have three terrific guests on the program today, and their work reflects different approaches hospitals are taking, depending on the country and here in the U.S., on the type of hospital. So we're going to get actually a pretty good view of some interesting work on the hospital at night. And I'm going to introduce our guests in just a minute, but first here's IHI's John Gothier keeping an eye on WebEx for us to ensure that you're an active WIHI participant. John. Hi, thanks, Madge. I uh, just have a few items to point out to help you all make the most of today's program. Uh, first of all, we have the chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes pla- place in the chat window. Uh, we keep the cat- chat closed during the beginning of the conversation, but open it up after about 20 minutes for all of you to share your questions and comments. Once the chat is open, make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants. We'll be in the studio monitoring the chat area and bringing the questions to Madge and our guests. There are sure to be some helpful resources that come up during the program, and we have created a resource document that we'll post on IHI.org along with the recording of today's program. And there's a few ways that you are uh, connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to the program by streaming audio coming through speakers or headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. This format works best if you're on a high-speed connection. If you're on a slower connection, call in on the phone. If you're logged onto the computer and have requested a phone connection, you'll see a small icon with a red X near your name and listed in the attendee window. If you're dialed in on the phone today, you'll only not be, you'll not be able to ask questions, so just sit back and relax and enjoy the program. And finally, if you experience any technical difficulties, please send me a message chat on WebEx. 
Back to you, Mitch. All right. Thank you so much, John Gothier. So um, I'm thrilled that we're, I don't know, I guess as we get to kind of the shortest day of the year, as it were, and more darkness than lightness in, in uh, our hemisphere anyway. Um, it's interesting to talk about the hospital at night, since nighttime can sometimes feel like it's uh, starting at 4 o'clock. So uh, let me now provide some brief introductions for our guests. And again, thanks for your patience as everybody got on board. Joining us from North Wales is Dr. David Gozard, a hematologist whom we at IHI had the pleasure of working with directly when he was a Health Foundation fellow here several years ago. And in the past decade, David's been the medical director of two separate trusts in Wales that have now become one, and he's helped lead several national patient safety initiatives. Among other things, he currently consults on quality improvement in healthcare. Welcome, David. Are you there? Madge, I hope you can hear me from North Wales. It's great to be on the line. <laughs> well, you sound almost as far away as that perhaps is. <laughs> but other than me, be, be, well, be, it's not that far, Madge. No, I know. Other than being at sea, well, we've got uh, if you're. If, logged on to the computer with us, all of us, you see uh, David's very friendly face and a little bit about him. So welcome, David, and I, in some sense, owe the uh, fact of focusing on this program uh, to him and some of his early work on this in the UK. So jumping to Ohio, Dr. Christine White is an assistant professor of pediatrics and the director for general inpatient services at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center in none other than Cincinnati. And she's been involved in numerous improvement activities, including medication reconciliation and improving communication between and among staff at night. Welcome, Christine. Thank you very much, Matt, for having me. All right, wonderful. And sharing the state of Massachusetts with those of us here at IHI in the Cambridge office is Dr. Winthrop Whitcomb, who is a practicing hospitalist at Bay State Medical Center in Springfield, Mass. His work and activities have been central to the growth of the hospitalist profession and the 24-7 staffing that goes along with it. He's the author of three books related to the hospitalist practice, and we're grateful, Win, that you could be part of our program. Welcome. Hi, Madge. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to the hour. Okay, fabulous. Okay. So just a reminder, if you're just joining us, this is WIHI. We're talking about nighttime in the hospital and by extension to some extent, I guess, uh, weekends and holidays as well. And we're talking about improving the staffing, the teamwork, the coordination of care, the handoffs, the communications. It's all part of this topic. So let's get started. Now, I, uh, as I sometimes like to do, I want to do just a very quick round Robin with each of our guests just to get kind of some big big view thoughts and then we'll dig into each of their areas and the work that they've done. So while I'm sure everyone who's joined us today is here because they share some concerns and or perhaps they're working hard on nighttime hours in hospitals, but I want to start off by playing a bit of devil's advocate as in what's the problem? And do we know that nighttime presents particular risks to patients and what kind of studies back this up? And David, let me start with you. Uh, yes, Madge, I think uh, nighttime is a problem. I think it's a problem of recognizing ill patients. It's a problem of getting the doctor with the necessary expertise to that patient. It's a problem, really, of having a wide number of specialties with things that can go wrong. And yet the number of doctors in the hospital uh, in the old days certainly used to be um, quite large, and they all used to be um, from those specialties. Now, of course, with shift work, etc., the number of doctors are reduced. 
Thanks, David. And um, I imagine, uh, and we're going to get into this as you did work or started to get uh, work underway, were you looking at some pretty uh, interesting and important studies? Is that some of what catapulted uh, some of the work in the UK? I think really, uh, going back the last uh, 10 years, it was really the early 2000s that we began to realize there was a perfect storm coming. The first was that, that we wanted a reduction in doctor's hours, not only through the British Medical Association, but also through the European Working Time Directive. When I was a trainee doctor in the early 70s, I used to work 100 hours a week. Now, those 100 hours, 40 of them would be office hours, uh, and 60 of them would be in the evening and at night, I hope to be asleep in my bed, but I could be called up, etc. Now, of course, doctors are working less than 48 hours. Um, so that was one thing that was coming along. If I wanted to maintain the continuity of care for my hospital, I would have needed an extra 29 doctors. Okay. <laughs> Secondly, there was a reduction in yeah. years for training. Right. So, um, you know, I finished medical school at 23. I gained my independent uh, consultant status at the age of 35. Now doctors are coming through to their independent status at, uh, in the early 30s. So this would not only got a, a reduction in the number of hours that doctors were there, but their training opportunities were less. And thirdly, we recognized an elderly population uh, that would require more access. And this potentially would make the hospitals um, possibly more dangerous places, more patients, more complex cases, fewer doctors, etc. So it was that sort of thing that was happening. Okay, thank you, David. All right, Christine, uh, let me let me turn to you. Um, is is there a problem? And uh, with particular, is, is nighttime a, a risk factor, in, in a sense? And is that something that you've been looking at? And again, we're just going to do some brief things here, and then I'll get into each of uh, the work that you've uh, been doing. Yes, Madge, definitely. Um, emissions don't stop at 5 o'clock, so um, I agree with David as uh, new admissions come in, uh, the new patients and the resources and personnel and sometimes the least experienced personnel, especially in a teaching hospital, are the ones that are there in the hospital. Um, what we found here at Cincinnati Children's is we were reviewing um, our root cause analysis for safety events and adverse events is that frequently those are happening at night uh, where people are afraid to actually call the attending or supervising doctor that's at home because they said, oh, we can just wait till the morning to address that. Um, and a lot of those problems are happening at night. New patients are coming in. They tend to be very sick when they come in their first time. And you've got inexperience on a nursing staff and physician level, the ones who are actually making the decisions for those patients. Okay, thanks. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thank you, Christine White from Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Okay, uh, when just a kind of kind of headline sense of uh, ha has there been a problem and has it been recognized for a while now? Well, I think, um, you know, there are a lot of studies that have sh uh, shown that patients haven't done as well uh, when the sun goes down or on weekends as they do during normal business hours um, for a number of conditions. Um, so, yes, there's a problem, um, but there were problems also around um, career sustainability for physicians trying to work all day and then be available all night and then work the following day. So, so a lot of it was driven by what really worked for physicians to um, be available and engaged in patient care after hours. And I'll talk a little bit about the growth of 
hospitalist programs first really growing during the day and then by necessity growing and having doctors in the building at night as well. Okay, thank you very much. All right, uh, just as if you're just getting on board, again, it's WIHI. I'm Madge Kaplan trying to get a frog out of my voice here, and we are talking about the hospital at night, and I have three terrific guests. All right, so I'm going to now uh, go back to David Gozart from North Wales, and, uh, you know, in a sense, David, and it may just be my ignorance, but sometimes it's out of sight, out of mind, except for perhaps people tuning in from the U.K., I'm not sure that a lot of the people on WIHI today would have realized that more than 80% of hospitals in the UK have what are called hospital at night programs in coverage and coverage anchored by interdisciplinary teams and that this has all been going on the past decade. And uh, interesting factors, as you started to suggest, kind of began to come come along as a perfect storm. But give us that wonderful uh, thumbnail sketch of uh, how has this come about that there is this uh, degree of coverage in the hospitals uh, in the UK? Thanks, Madge. And I I think it all comes down to uh, um, the availability of doctors, uh, particularly at night, to staff the various departments within the hospital. So reducing the doctor's hours from 100 to maybe less than 48 in the week, uh, reducing the training of the doctors, you really begin to recognize that uh, from being there 100 hours a week and everybody knows who you are and you know who all the patients are, suddenly uh, you're, you're in, working in shift systems, you're having to consider handovers, uh, handoffs, um, and, and, and things like this. And really what we thought was uh, an idea came from the uh, UK that rather than having doctors uh, in the hospital at night, try and reduce the number of doctors to bring them into the daytime, to give them the opportunity to see patients, uh, be trained, uh, and, and to get, get educational opportunities. And what we came up with was the hospital at night uh, concept, which was about getting a multidisciplinary team. So uh, it would be doctors, nurses, there would be IT people, administrators, etc. But what that would do is give you a team that had generic competencies. Uh, so they were able to deal with problems that came up in the patients. That relied on two things. First of all, recognizing what the uh, team needed to be in terms of the work that was required, but it also required on you what I would call putting the hospital to bed, making sure that the work that came in the early evening was actually dealt with by midnight. Um, And on the screen in front of me, you can see the concept of this uh, team uh, where we may have had A&E medicine, surgery, various specialties of surgeries, trauma and orthopedics, etc., anesthesia. And we put these teams together. We reduced the number of doctors that were in hospital. From before the hospital at night, there would have been 35 doctors in my hospital. And now it's down to about 15. So those 20 doctors that were released at night were now working during the day at a time when the major trauma, the major cases were coming in and and getting the most experience and giving their service. Thanks. I didn't. Um, we actually have a few more slides, uh, and I just want to make sure that we. <laughs> David followed my instructions so well when I was asking everybody to give uh, the the boiler plate. Plate. So I really, <laughs> I really appreciate it. Let me just. I'm going to throw up uh, this one. It requires generic competencies, and um, partly because I think it's a beautiful slide. But um, talk us through this just a little bit here, David. 
and what, what this uh, is represents. might be uh, who, um, who would be in the hospital at night team? Well, we'd have what we call a, a middle grade um, me- medical uh, person, uh, a, a mature resident, I think you would call them in the U.S., who, who had lots of uh, expertise. You'd have a similar anesthetist, but other doctors from various specialties throughout the hospital. So, for instance, take an ear, nose, and throat doctor in training. They could come onto the hospital at night team, not to deal with the specialty of ear, nose, and throat, but to be able to deal with the medical problems that came up or the surgical problems. You know, most people who are going through training can recognize a wound infection or place a, a cannula or deal with some simple medication, etc. Uh, and it's uh, getting uh, individuals like this together, maybe 10 or 11 in the hospital at night team, that can go away making sure that they have uh, these competences that you can see in front of them. So there was some educational aspect to this as well, some training. Uh, but providing all these competences were covered, then you didn't require the 35 doctors at night, uh, who for the most part, in the, in the old days I would say, would be sleeping. Okay, all right, that's very, very helpful. Okay, one quick follow-up question, then I'm going to turn to Wynn. You, um, as this work has been going on for some time now, uh, there, and is kind of blanketing most hospitals in the UK, there's been an opportunity to study some of the effects and some of the benefits. Can you just quickly tick off what some of those results have showed? I think there's really been a lot of concern. Um, The concerns have been twofold. First of all, is taking away these doctors at night going to cause any harm to patients? So we've been very carefully monitoring the adverse events that might occur. There's been no increase in adverse events. And what I might say is that because you have a team that are meeting around about midnight, they know who the ill patients are, they will be looking at them throughout the night, etc. We've seen a decrease in cardiac arrest. Um, Secondly, we've seen a decrease in the inter-hospital transfer of patients. And thirdly, we've seen a decrease in the patients that were transferred between hospitals. So it seems to me that not only have we set up a team that uh, uh, doesn't do any harm to the patient, but they're actually doing some good. I think the second issue is quite important, and that's about training. So, you know, when I was in the 70s, a surgeon who was going to come and be an attending may have had 30,000 hours of experience during the, their uh, training period. Now, with the reduction in the hours, it's 6,000 hours. How do we get them to get the experience that they need to be a, a competent surgeon? And so what we say is that every patient contact is a training and an educational opportunity. Uh, and we're very keen on getting the training in and making sure that happens, rather than in the old days when it was slightly by osmosis. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. David Gosart from North Wales, a hematologist who's been very involved in uh, this whole initiative throughout the UK, uh, including in in Wales. I really appreciate it. We'll follow up with some additional questions during the Q&A section of the program, uh, particularly about some of the interest uh, that some folks may have about the greater use of nurse practitioners and some others. So um, really appreciate that. So you've just been listening to Dr. David Gosart from North Wales. So let me turn next to you. You, Wynne Whitcomb. And as I've learned in preparing for WIHI, there's a really strong connection between this issue, the hospital at night, and the growing role of hospitalists, uh, to the point now where we have a term called nocturnists, uh, which perhaps folks on the phone were familiar with before uh, we got that title into the program. And you mentioned to me in preparing for the show that Mercy Hospital in Springfield, Mass., uh, in the 90s, where you worked for quite a while, 
was the first hospital in the U.S., you said, to have 24-hour coverage by a physician. And at first that made me scratch my head and do a double take. What do you mean? There wasn't a physician there uh, 24 hours. But I'm confident you're going to explain all that to us. When welcome. <laughs> yeah, sure. Thanks, Madge. And, um, yeah, so um, Mercy was among the first um, hospitals in the U.S. to have uh, what I'll call board-certified um, internists on site 24-7. Um, emergency departments had physicians on site 24-7 starting, um, I'm, I'm told, 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and actually, if you go back before that, at least in the United States, before emergency medicine physicians were in the building all night, I'm not sure if anybody was actually in the building all night who was fully trained and really looked at their role in the hospital as a career track. Um, so then if you sort of fast forward to 2011, um, and if you go to uh, my first of two slides, um, what you see is you see the growth of um, hospitalists who are uh, – in the building at night, and, and before I explain the slide, let me give you two definitions. One is the definition of a hospitalist, um, and that is a, um, uh, a, a physician who's a generalist whose primary professional focus is the care of hospitalized patients. Um, and then you have a, a nocturnist, and that definition, at least as we put in the Society of Hospital Medicine 2011 survey is, an, is a hospitalist who predominantly provides in-hospital night coverage for inpatients. Um, so if you go back to that slide, uh, the first slide, what you see is um, uh, it reflects what's happened around the United States, and that is first you've had the really explosive growth of hospitalists um, throughout uh, both academic medical centers and community hospitals starting, oh, about 15 years ago and then growing so that as of 2010, as it shows, uh, shows here, um, we have hospital hospitalist groups providing on-site care. Um, about two-thirds uh, of hospitals. And then what you have is, um, and that by on-site, I mean that's on-site all night long. Um, and then uh, a minority, about a third, providing uh, more this more traditional model of beeper call or, you know, you're at home and you're on, a, on the beeper and covering nights that way. Now, this next slide is a little confusing, but it does show from our 2011 uh, survey, again, uh, percentage of night coverage uh, provided by nocturnists. And just recall, a nocturnist is somebody who only does night work, uh, who is a hospitalist. And what we see here is about um, 16% of hospitalist programs uh, have their night coverage completely covered by nocturnists. Now, the balance um, I showed you on the other slide, but the balance of uh, ha the majority of those hospitalist programs do have somebody in the building at night. It's just that it's more of a rotational schedule where those hospitalists might do some night work but then rotate with day shifts as well. Um, so just sort of as a summary statement to the growth, what we've seen is tremendous growth in hospitalist programs in general, and as they've grown, they've found it necessary to um, have somebody in the building all night long. It just doesn't make sense to do it any other way. And the real 
um, sort of aha with this is that um, the hospitalists who are functioning as nocturnists have really seen that this is a unique skill set. So it's a little different than the skill set of a daytime hospitalist. This is somebody who's really good at taking care of uh, patients at night, patients who are unstable, patients who are just being admitted to the hospital, and also cross-covering often large numbers of patients um, in in hospitals. Um, And so uh, that's what we've seen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I could go on, but why don't I leave the sort of demographics at that? Okay, that sounds good. And we'll follow up with uh, some, you know, additional questions about that. Uh, Just maybe one quick thing, very quickly. Uh, As far as the benefit, the effect, uh, has research uh, been able to shed some light on this, on what difference nocturnists are making? Yeah, so not a tremendous amount of really great research uh, yet on uh, what nocturnists are are able to provide in terms of quality or cost. We have research on hospitalist programs in general that have shown a beneficial effect on length of stay and cost in hospital for patients during the hospitalization. We have some evidence to show that quality is better, but other reports raising some questions about whether quality is better or the same than the traditional model. So um, stay tuned on that one, Matt. Okay. All right. Thank you, Wynne Whitcomb from Bay State Medical Center, and who's been tracking a lot of this as a hospitalist uh, for more than the past decade. So I want to now turn to Christine White here on WIHI with us as we're talking about the hospital at night. Now, Christine, your involvement in this work and the research uh, helped introduce something called Night Talks, which also got my attention. And it started really with an identified problem at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. So what were you concerned about? What were you tracking? And what kind of work, therefore, ensued? Yeah, great question, Madge. Um, so we, as I said before, as we looked a few years ago at our adverse events, um, they seem to revolve around three themes. Failure to address parents' concerns, failures to address nursing concerns, and unrecognized vital sign trends. And as I said before, most of the time that they were occurring at night, so we found that to be a very vulnerable time. So as we started to look at this um, with one of my colleagues, Javier Gonzalez, um, we wanted to institute a program called Night Talks to address some of those communication concerns that were happening at night. So we chose our neurosurgical service because we have a pediatric hospitalist on the neurosurgical service and pediatric residents on that service. And what we came up with the program is that at nighttime, typically uh, between 11.30 and 12 o'clock, the residents, so our intern, our first-year residents and senior residents, would run through all the neurosurgical patients, focusing on any um, of the abnormal vital signs or any concerns they had about that patient. And at the same time, we would have the charge nurse on the neurosurgical patients go to each bedside nurse and ask those same questions. Do the parents have any concerns, any abnormal vital signs concerns that you have, or any concerns the nurses have? And what we would do is that then the first-year resident and the charge nurse would meet on the unit and discuss all the patients. And then we mandated, if there was a yes to any of those questions, that each of the patients, or the bedside nurse, the charge nurse, the senior resident and intern, along with any ancillary staff, such as our respiratory therapist, would go to the bedside and assess the patient and come up with a plan. And then we would make a mandatory phone call to the attending or the pediatric hospitalist at night to review the questions and review the patients. As we felt that part of our problems 
were that the residents would have issues or things would come up in the middle of the night, but they didn't want to wake the attending up, they didn't want to bother them, or they didn't realize that they should be calling the attending at that point. Um, so there were a lot of educational opportunities. Um, or they would just say, oh, the team's going to be here in the morning. We'll just put off any of this decision-making to the morning. So what we had found when we measured this is we looked at um, the days in between near misses. So we defined a near miss as a miss in care. So, for instance, if the resident forgot to write that the patient wasn't allowed to eat and that delayed surgery, or the patient needed to have um, a lab drawn that wasn't drawn by the nurses, or, for instance, they the kid had a high heart rate um, over the night and nobody recognized to look to see if they were anemic. Um, and what we had found initially before we started this and through our multiple different interventions is we were not... Um, we we're only going at the maximum 10 days between the misses, and sometimes we're having them every day. With the Institute of our final program, we actually um, went 201 days between near misses on our neurosurgical patients. Um, since then, we have spread to our other medical teams, um, and it's matured as we've learned more um, and become more sophisticated. Um, some of the work one of my colleagues, Pat Brady, has been doing is working on situation awareness and incorporating some of the ideas of that um, as you can see on one of the slides, we've come, our three questions have morphed into um, more specific concerns, including high-risk therapy. So if there's a patient on the surgical floor who needs insulin and insulin's not something that they normally do, we discussed that at our night talk. We talked about our pediatric early warning scores, or we've added this term called a watcher, that kid that you have that gut feeling about that something's wrong but can't pinpoint it, that we have that in the discussion. And then... In light of the new resident work hours, um, as the residents are starting to work shifts, um, we wanted to incorporate these into the handoffs and start looking at our handoffs. So our residents now have a handoff between 8 and 9 p.m., um, which is actually now a multidisciplinary handoff, so they pass on their patients in the presence of the nurses. Um, and then we incorporated some of the night talks questions to that 8 to 9 o'clock. And then one of the benefits that we have of the um, new resident work hours is now we have a fresh resident at night who's not been here 20 hours at this point. Um, so at 2 to 3 o'clock in the morning, we actually instituted something now that we call Coffee Talk, which allows us the opportunity to look at those patients we were missing before with the original night talks at 11.30. We still get a lot of patients that are admitted up through the night, but mainly up until 1 to 2 o'clock in the morning, that we can discuss those new patients, focus on... Um, the sick kids and talking about our watchers and any of the other concerns that have come up. And then we've introduced other pieces to that, such as, you know, early figuring out which kids are going to go home in the morning and other pieces into that um, and have had great success with that. And you've said, thank you, and you've said, I believe, that this model has really been spread throughout the hospital? Correct. Mainly to our um, medical services. Okay. So, um, at this point, all of our medical services, a few of our surgical services, like our trauma team and our liver transplant team, have had it. We've run into some uh, hard parts as far as with surgical services, especially since each patient sometimes has their own attending, and facilitating that conversation has been more difficult. Oh. Or they have a resident who actually covers two hospitals and it cannot be present for the coffee talks or night talks. 
So let me, uh, thanks, Christine. Let me ask you one other quick follow-up question. Um, I've had discussions about resident work hours on WIHI, and it's certainly an issue everyone on the program is familiar with. Um, there is a way in which a lot of these issues and changes are coming together uh, and actually working well together. Um, do you feel that skeptics around any number of issues in terms of what's possible, but particularly beginning, are, are somehow <laughs> encouraged uh, by the kind of work you've been able to do at Cincinnati Children's, uh, skeptics particularly about shifts and that kind of thing? I think so. I think that it's brought with us some different opportunities that made us think outside the box as far as, you know, the multidisciplinary handoff. Um, now with the shift work and incorporating night talks to that, the nurses actually feel like they know what's going on with the patients and know why we're doing things and feel like they're more part of the team. Um, and I think we've had great positive results that people buy into it. And it has brought us the opportunity of having now two check-in points where, you know, we do look at that at the in the middle of the night now, too. So um, I think that there's been other opportunities, and we've seen the changes sustainable as far as the days between near misses, depending on whatever service that we're on that has been a success. All right. So great. Thank you, Christine, from Cincinnati Children's, and great thumbnail sketches as I demand from everybody for WIHI. I appreciate everyone uh, trying to get things out very succinctly. All right. It's time now to hear from our WIHI participants, and uh, John is going to just remind you how to chat in questions and comments, and we'll get in as much as we can uh, before the hour is up. John. All right, just a reminder that uh, when you're chatting at us, make sure you chat to all participants. Uh, that's what, that way, uh, Madge and I in the studio can see what you're saying, and so can David, Wynn, and Christine. Uh, we do have some great questions that have been uh, thrown at us so far. Uh, one from Elon says, has there been any divide within hospitalist groups between those who work days and those who work nights? Uh, and they're referring to fewer admissions, less involvement with medication reconciliation, and perception of reduced workload. Okay, thanks, John. And just a reminder, do uh, chat into all participants participants. Uh, these folks have obviously got to John early uh, with some comments uh, privately, which John is sharing, which I appreciate. Maybe John can kind of, if there are any more, he can throw them into the big chat screen here. So do chat in your questions to all participants. So divides between day and night, I guess when that's for you. <laughs> uh, sure, absolutely there there is. And what happens is, is that um, it's it, the nature of the work is different from night to day, um, and you'll see within hospitalist groups separate cultures um, develop between the nocturnist and the day hospitalist uh, as a result of those the, the the difference in the nature of the work. And the question sort of alluded to, geez, are the night hospitalist or the nocturnist uh, pulling their weight in terms of uh, workload? Are they doing all they should be doing for performance improvement and things like medication reconciliation. And I would say, you know, it's really kind of apples and oranges at night. You, it, It's a lot harder. And I was interested with David's, um, you know, model of having a multidisciplinary team active at night. I mean, we have a hard enough time getting our multidisciplinary team active during the day that I was really fascinated with that model. But uh, so night, uh, the, the night hospitalists tend to be more patient care focused. Um, by by necessity, but I still think they're um, you know doing a lot of hard work in some ways.
ways they're working you know as hard as anybody could possibly imagine and and you know the conundrum for the for the having a nocturnist program is that if you look at pure workload they're actually doing less than the daytime uh, hospitalists in terms of how much they bill or produce but if you look at for example you know the average night hospitalist uh, does something like fields 50 pages from nurses and in, in the midst of trying to do do their other work as well and puts in you know hundreds to thousands of orders every night um, you know it's uh, it's difficult work and it just um, sometimes you, it's hard to track how how productive they are so yes and then then finally the challenge becomes how do you bring cultures together uh, David mentioned the challenge of handover handoff between shifts and that's one key sort of what reason why cultures need to come together and you know we can talk about some of the um, solutions um, if you want okay great okay we had to get the chat thing uh, thank you very much uh, when and by the way I encourage I always try and encourage guests to ask uh, any questions you would like to of one another uh, when suggested uh, just very quickly David that uh, the multidisciplinary aspect of things that you have in Wales is something he could only maybe dream of of, uh, talking primarily about uh, a more single profession, to kind of focus on the nighttime. Uh, what what makes that multidisciplinary implementation perhaps easier in the UK, David? Well, uh, thanks, Marge, and it was interesting listening to Win. I think the important difference is that we don't have any doctors who just work at night. Um, traditionally, all doctors in training have worked during the daytime, but have had to do night call and uh, be resident within the hospital. Um, so what, all, all we've done is we've taken that residence at night and incorporated it. Rather than 35 doctors wandering around the corridors individually, we've turned it into a team that meets. Uh, I was uh, interested in Christine's uh, uh, chart there. We meet about 12 of midnight, uh, and we allocate uh, ill patients for somebody to go and have a look at, uh, and the senior medical resident will be there and uh, coordinating or orchestrating the, uh, uh, the, the, the resource that he has in terms of the manpower. Thanks, uh, David. And uh, is, would the notion of a nocturnist seem very odd uh, in the UK? Yes. I mean, uh, <laughs> we do have doctors during the day that work du- just during the day who aren't in training. They're, they're called staff-grade doctors. They come in. They're not in a training program. They have tenure. Uh, they they uh, sit in uh, and have certain um, uh, uh, ca- competences and capabilities, but we don't have any nocturnists. Uh, we tend to d- deal with that with uh, this uh, hospital at night team. Okay, thank you. There's a question here about uh, somebody is asking, uh, Coralie, is any work being done on sleep hygiene and nutrition intervention on the night shift to improve alertness? Um, and I assume what we're talking about here is uh, for the staff itself. Uh, maybe I'll just toss that one first to you, Christine. Does that resonate at all, that particular question? Um, it does. I mean, I think most of the work and the studies that have been done so far have been done for residents, and I think that's one of the main reasons why um, the work hour restrictions went into place, because um, of the lack of sleep hygiene. Um, I don't think, at least from my end, I've seen some of the changes um, on the faculty positions yet um, as we kind of look at that. Um, so for my part, I haven't seen a lot of studies for that, but I think that it's coming down the line. As the residents work more shift work, I think we're going to have to reevaluate 
our fellows are attending and how our work hours is those are changing. Okay, thanks, uh, Christine White at Cincinnati Children's. So a number of people are intrigued by this notion of a nocturnist. There's a couple of questions. Uh, when we'll sort of toss them back your way. How do you attract doctors to become nocturnists? Uh, some people are wondering about uh, continuing, uh, ensuring continuing ed for it. Somebody else is wondering whether it's something that you rotate through if you're even training to be a more general hospitalist. Yeah, so those are all great questions. Um, and it's more gray than black and white. Um, so it is hard to attract nocturnists. And in general, the work is, and for anybody, and maybe everybody on the call has, remembers what it feels like at 4 a.m. after you've been working, you know, for 8 or 10 hours. It, it doesn't feel great. Um, and um, so it's hard to get folks. And so what hospitals programs have done in general is they either – um, work those nocturnists. They they demand fewer hours per month or per year from the nocturnist at the same pay, or they pay them more for the same amount of work. Um, but in any case, you know, my sort of uh, observation has been it's really hard to make a career out of this. And the uh, you know, I have one colleague. She's sort of the original nocturnist, and she did it for about nine years. And she just had that you know makeup where she could she liked to work at nights, and she was a full time mom during the day and. Um, but most people last a few years in the role. They're often doing it for lifestyle reasons, whether, you know, they're moms or they have something they love to do during the day. Or, but the folks who are doing it, you know, for more than 10 years are, you know, that's a small group of, of, of people. Um, so, it, and then in terms of continuing education, I'm not sure if it's too much different. Um, you know, there's the uh, usual menu of options, and I don't know if that menu is a whole lot different for, uh, for for nocturnists. Okay, thank you. Wynn Whitcomb at uh, Bay State Medical Center in Springfield, Massachusetts. David, I'm just going to lob one in for me here. You mentioned when we were discussing uh, the, today's program that uh, First of all, that there's some benefits accrued to the daytime processes learned at night. And you also said, sort of uh, maybe a slightly contradictory or not, that there's also a bit of vulnerability going from night to day uh, in terms of the handoff. Could you uh, elaborate? Yes, I think, um, like I said, when I was a, a young trainee and I was in the hospital 100 hours a week, there really wouldn't be any necessity for me to be handing over to anyone. Uh, I'd work through the day, I'd be on call at night, I'd know the patients, etc. I was working almost as a, as a daytime doctor and a nocturnist in, in one. <laughs> now that we're working shift systems, and it, uh, shift systems are virtually uni, uniform now across the National Health Service, uh, the, the important thing is handing over the care of the patients. One of the easy things that we've done is that as you walk onto a ward and have a look, look at the list of your patients in the morning, uh, there's a little uh, note at the side, a little badge that says hospital at night if your patient has, has been seen by uh, one of the team, etc. Uh, but certainly uh, uh, there is uh, vulnerability uh, uh, of the handoffs. It's something that we've had to invent um, you know, and, and actually make sure it's reliable. I mean, secondly is the benefits of the hospital at night, particularly as we move now into the hospital at day. Um, it sounds <laughs> a bit of contradiction, but the, the lessons that we've learned from getting a small team together with uh, um, m multiple competences is enabling us now to 
produce the same sort of teams during the day that deal with the emergency work coming in uh, and allow us then to get on with the elective work uh, where so much of the training is done, particularly in surgery, etc. Um, so we're learning some of the uh, uh, lessons of the hospital at night and some hospitals are now bringing in hospital at day teams. Interesting. That's great. So one of your uh, UK colleagues, uh, a fellow here uh, at IHI right now, Chris, is asking about some new uh, Dr. Foster organization research just been uh, published that says one in eight hospitals had higher than expected death rates on weekends. And I believe we did discuss that just because maybe people, the hospitals are getting things a bit better on night times and evenings and night times doesn't necessarily necessarily extend to the weekends. What, what's going on on weekends, David? Don't mean to put you on the spot. You know? I'd be very interested to see the case mix of that. I, I'm, I, I know the, the Dr. Foster research has hit our, our headlines yeah. here. Right. I think it was something like 7.6% during the weekdays, uh, going up to 8.1 or something like that at the weekends. Uh, they, they called it statistically a 10% rise, uh, but you can see what the numbers are. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's interesting to look at what the causes of this might be. Uh, weekends, there's more people moving around. Uh, I suspect there are more RTAs at uh, weekends, more trauma. Um, uh, I'd really be quite keen to see what these uh, cases are. Uh, certainly, I think weekends have always been uh, more dangerous than the weekdays, and it goes for holidays as well. Uh, but I think the difference is, is minute, uh, and uh, of course we can't be complacent about it, but it's not, uh, it's not earth-shatteringly greater than during the weekday. Okay. Thank you, David. And by the way, uh, just a reminder to everybody that when you log off the program today, you can download uh, all our slides that we shared with you. And we're also trying to capture some of the references and resources, and we'll have those in a resource document. And perhaps we can publish some of the links, uh, uh, provide some of the links to the foster research, as well as uh, some of the other things that David has shared with me. Christine, I wanted to ask you uh, whether or not you feel that the program that's been going on at Cincinnati Children's uh, is something that other academic medical centers in particular, trying to find this uh, kind of new magic and systems with resident work hours, etc., could begin to learn from and also develop their own models uh, with, with some uh, learning f- from what's going on at Cincinnati. No, I definitely do think it's spreadable. I mean, I think a lot of it is about communication and how do you communicate and um, having those discussions on a regular basis. And as David has talked about, how do you move that into the day, too, and have those same conversations? I think there's a lot of great work um, that's going on as far as um, there's an IPASS study that's um, starting to look at Chris Landrigan and Jen O'Toole at our institution and Amy Starmer are working on and looking at these handoffs and, you know, with cutting resident work hours, the handoffs have to be looked at even more um, on what are the quality of those handoffs and how do we teach people to handoff patients and also be aware of everything that's going on when they're, they've been in shifts and don't may not know the patients as well as, um, as they're turning the patients over. So I definitely think that these are um, spreadable concepts. I think we have to um, take a lot of it to the day, um, too, because I think the shift work is affecting exactly what David says and how things um, happen in the mornings and how things are turned over in the mornings um, as it becomes more vulnerable as we change things over. Um, I think for for us, this had been a great opportunity for education at night. Um, so when the residents would call and give an example of a plan that they were making and um, 
saying that, oh, we've got um, this patient with a high heart rate, we think they're just fussy or it's just pain, and going through the differential of what it could be and talking about, well, it could be anemia, it's a post-op patient, let's get a CBC. And I think that we then start treating the patients with care all the time and not just waiting to the morning is the time to care for them. So we could get those CBCs, the complete blood count, look in to see if they're anemic and have that in the morning so we can decide to transfuse them or not or not instead of waiting in the afternoon. And I think what we have to look at, I think we found a lot of those educational teaching points with our night talks, but um, and now that as the residents work more shifts or how do you, kind of what Wynn was saying, but how do you with nocturnists have an educational component if you're in a teaching hospital for residents now because they can't get all their learning during the day anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you kind of translate that as well? Thanks. Go ahead. I can chime in. So this is yes. when um, yeah. we um, added a, a, a separate uh, shift. So we had two nocturnists uh, um, who were doing, you know, everything that a nocturnist does at night, admissions, consults, um, emergencies, rapid responses, and, and lots of cross-coverage. And what we added um, last year was uh, another um, hospitalist at night who was only precepting the residents, um, to Christine's point. So the teaching really goes 24 hours a day now um, with that dedicated um, night hospitalist who's only precepting the residents. Uh, thanks, uh, Wynn and, and Christine both. Um, David has mentioned, uh, he sort of mentioned more in passing, and I can get him to elaborate on it as well, on the greater use of nurse practitioners. And um, maybe David sort of remind us of, of how that has come about, and then I'm curious from the other, from Wynn and Christine, sort of what about other other staff in this mix here? Yes, Madge, that's a great question. Um, I mean, essentially, when we were looking at setting up the hospital at night, uh, the issue was uh, around uh, were doctors do it doing medical work or were they doing other work that could be undertaken by other staff groups? Uh, and again, part of the audit within the hospital was to get doctors to complete diaries at night to say what they were doing, etc. And it became very apparent that many of the things that they were being called to do often up out of their beds uh, was, um, and this is the slide, a significant proportion of doctor time is spent on non-clinical routine tasks. We found that we could transfer some of these tasks uh, to other professional groups. And along came the uh, nurse specialist, the nurse practitioner, who really is an essential uh, part of the team uh, and works alongside the doctors, uh, helping them with some of the routine tasks and uh, uh, other things. Um, and, and that's really how it's developed. And I suspect every hospital has a number of these nurse practitioners now, uh, and you'll always find one, one or two at night. Thanks. Um, so... <laughs> I, so, so we, let me start with you, Christine. When you kind of look at um, this, uh, I'll, we'll leave David's slide up here about non-clinical and routine tasks that go on. Um, what, what? Uh, I don't know. Just give me your reaction to it. Uh, how, how would this be greeted <laughs> at Cincinnati Children's or any academic uh, medical center? Oh, I, you know, I think we're actually as part of the study that they're, the residents are actually getting followed for the same reason. Um, to look and see what they're actually doing when they're on call or on their shift work. And, you know, I think it does start to resonate. Um, I actually can't see the slide. Oh, I'm sorry. That's right. right we, 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 <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I apologize. That's right. We had to patch no, in by fine. phone. Yep. 
No, but I th- I think, you know, that definitely resonates. And then how do you look at to see what's the most worthwhile? And from where I come from, as far as the residency, you know, what are worthwhile educational activities for the residents? Do they need to be covering every single patient in the hospital? Probably not, because I think there's some things that are have low learning experiences to them. And as you look at some of the paperwork they're doing and how do we look at um, decreasing those things and facilitating um, ease of care um, is something that's going to is, is really important. Thanks, uh, Christine. So, by the way, anyone else who's just joining by phone, uh, this was a very nice thing that uh, David Gozar put together, and it was time spent by activity, three different sites and 7,000 calls, and what he's looking at here is a workload that didn't require medical skills, workload where there's medical uh, input, and then uh, some uh, duplication. So, anyway, if you email us at info at IHI.org, because you weren't logged on, we'll send you all the slides related to uh, the program today. When uh, let me let me throw that one over to you as you sort of look at the distribution of what doctors are actually doing and also uh, whether there's a role for nurse practitioners and perhaps other staff uh, as, as things go forward. Sure. So I think, you know, I'm not sure if this is a night versus day issue. I think maybe some of the non- um, you know, some of the clerical tasks that physicians are being asked to provide at night might be slightly different, but there's a lot of, you know, tasks that are, we're being asked to do both during the day and at night that don't require uh, medical school and, and medical training. Um, now, as it relates to nurse practitioners and here in the United States, physician assistants, um, I absolutely think they can be and they are indeed an important uh, member of the nighttime team. There are uh, uh, very clear roles um, for those professionals at night. Um, the Probably the most important one is they're helping the physician or even somewhat independently collecting uh, information on patients when they come in. They're doing a history, a physical exam, providing an assessment and plan, uh, usually in conjunction with a supervising physician, and they, they can be very effective um, in that role. They can also be very effective in the role of cross-coverage of the patients who are in the hospital uh, already who aren't being admitted that night. Um, you know, and just a word briefly about cross-coverage because I think this is a very big deal and something that isn't done very systematically uh, at night, and that is covering, you know, usually it's dozens to over a 100 patients that uh, one hospitalist is, is responsible for covering at night, and there's sort of two problems. One is that nurses don't really have a great system for, you know, when and how they reach the physician. Yes, they use the beeper, but it's not very sort of systematized. And number two, it's really hard to do your regular job while you're also being interrupted continuously with pages. So, um my sense is, besides handovers and some of these other things we've talked about, there's going to be a big opportunity to do performance improvement um, in that cross-coverage area. Okay. Well, that's probably a good note uh, to, to wrap up on then, uh, things to kind of look forward to. I want to uh, express my sincere thanks to Wynn Whitcomb from Bay State Medical Center, Christine White from Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, and David Gozart from North Wales, uh, sharing all their expertise in the work uh, they've been doing in this 
field and area of the hospital at night, which really touches on a, a lot of patient safety and quality issues and staffing issues. So my sincere thanks to all of them and to all of you who joined us today. And uh, just a, a, a special note, the IHI staff is in the process of relocating to Orlando for the week for our national forum, Talk About 24-7. And um, I look forward to seeing many of you there, as does the WIHI team. And if you're not able to attend, uh, please keep track of what we're up to while we're in, a, in Orlando. You can uh, pay attention to our website, Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, with the hashtag IHI. And uh, we'll be sending out some special editions of TW. That's this week at IHI as well. And then on December 15th, so that's our next WIHI, we're going to capture some highlights. It's called Heard at the Forum, New Ideas and Learning from IHI's 23rd Annual National Forum. And my guest will be Jeffrey Selberg, IHI's Executive Vice President and COO. And our fellows, David Gozard was a fellow, Chris Grant, who chatted in today, is a fellow. And we've got the whole team. Uh, we're going to gather around this table. It's going to be very crowded. And uh, yes. Chris Grant keeps blushing every time we mention his name. Oh, okay. Yes, we can see him <laughs> on the other side of some class. But we appreciate that Chris has tuned in. And our fellows are going to act as some eyes and ears for us at this year's forum. And we hope to provide you with some interesting new developments and innovations from Orlando, which is where we'll be next week. So again, uh, and information on that show is now on IHI.org. And if you want to enroll, you can do so right away. A reminder that you can download the chat and any slides we used when you log off today or email us at info at IHI.org. We'll send them to you. The people who make this program possible are Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Matt Morse, and Kristen Shearer. And then we have some music that we use to open and close the program by Aaron Flanders on guitar and Miguel Sapasoa on piano. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone. Thank you.